0: so karma does karma in its wider implication presume the concept of rebirth if we are determined by the past how can the present hold liberties I imagine liberation potential well you don't need a concept you just need to know that basically you know, karma is um, there's two aspects to it there's what we call fresh karma I means things we do and then there's old karma which is the results of what we've done or on a very you know many levels so sometimes it's just physically acted verbally acted or even emotionally acted you know the way we've kind of Cultivated certain inner actions of denial or dismissal or something like that. So even the, you know, the the karma, the actions of the heart, certain patterns, habits we've laid down in our hearts, that's all karma. Including dismissing the concept of karma. (laughs) Which is very bad karma. (laughs) Because (laughs) if you do that, then you blindly go away doing things and so that's the most relevant piece really Um, so you don't need a concept of rebirth but you can um you know begin to sense how old karma residual you know there's two kinds one is that which you're left with which is sense of the inheritance and you can see this forms as the experience of me. So, remember, I don't create karma, karma creates me. When you look at it that way. So, the results of certain actions create uh, and, and create a sense of uh, I am this, you know. You know what I mean? Uh, so, there's a certain set of habits, reactions, psychologies that seem to be myself. You know? so that's one result mm-hmm. and even good not necessarily evil but yeah. so you say there's good karma bad karma mingled and karma that leads to the end of karma the four kinds so bad karma mm-hmm. with a strong volitional impulse towards harming violating selfishness Dismissiveness, so forth. You know, and you can feel it. You know? Good karma, bright, loving, generous actions like that mm-hmm. gives rise to the result. Is feeling quite comfortable, lack of regret. Yeah, you know, uh-huh. uh, good friends, internal, external, mm-hmm. and also you've got to bear in mind it doesn't immediately bear fruit. It doesn't say it may take a while before the fruit like you throw a stone it may not land for another 20 meters or it might land one meter away so it depends how hard you throw it and what you're throwing it through anyway so so you get these various combinations of it see what I mean it's quite it's not just a simple thing so good karma bad karma mingled means it's got some good but some bad, yeah which is maybe we tell a lie in order to help somebody yeah. something like that you yeah. uh, know and then karma that leads to the end of karma means the deliberate actions and cultivations that you undertake in order to penetrate the tangle karma so that's also an action, subtle action of the eightfold path is the karma, at least the end of karma. Right. And then we can look at things like, you know, okay, so I got a dog with fleas, so I, you know, what do I want to do about that? So, and then, you know, so I'm thinking of flea, dig dog, or dog, fleas. It's a bit, mingled you know (laughs) so (laughs) however you sympathize for the flea or the dog (laughs) and there's things like you know you don't actually do anything but you you're you're the kind of leader of a government that sends ten thousand men off to fight and get killed well you haven't done anything but you definitely you were the motivator of the of all this slaughter so it's very heavy karma So it's not exactly, you know, uh, legal. You know, it's like I didn't do anything, didn't touch anything. Not me. You know. (laughs) Uh -uh. So it's just mingled because so you know so somebody who, okay. Say, look, if you don't go out there, we're going to shoot your wife and child. Okay, I'll go out there. So it's not great, but it's not like, you know. So a soldier has to go into the, arm, to the army, otherwise his wife and children are going to get tortured or something. I don't know, an example like that. So is that bad or good? Well, it's not good, but it's, it's kind of ameliorated, you see, by the quality of the intention. All these, the results of these give rise to the sense of what you're left with, you know, in your heart. So there's that's the result. So if you want to look at rebirth, the Buddha doesn't actually teach rebirth, <laughs> he teaches further birth. So he so called it ponobabika. That's uh, one term that means ongoing becoming. That is the process of becoming something which is happening to us now. We're always, you know, becoming something else as you know, as our minds move on. You see what I mean? You know, now now you, you sort of become a yogi for a while and then you go and you become a, a driver of a car or something. You know, So we, we kind of adopt these different forms of being in the sense of that's the becoming. Porno, Bhavika, further becoming. And the other term uses upajati, which means um, the arising of birth. So the sense of it is that uh, when there's this process of this, Moving on, tumbling on, which is an internal experience, right? And it's the internal domain, yeah. So, as you know, when you go to sleep, you know you're not aware of your physical body. Your internal stuff keeps moving, doesn't it? <laughs> Have you died? Are you sure? <laughs> So, at least we don't dismiss it, that maybe the internal domain doesn't just snap off when the body dies, when the external disappears, because it doesn't when we go to sleep. So maybe. Uh, I think, well, actually, if there was no such thing as further becoming, where did you come from? Did you start completely blank? did you you just pop up out of nowhere (laughs) completely blank no you came with something was going for you when you came out of birth wasn't there you can't remember it something was happening so you didn't start from nowhere (laughs) so if there's no clear start why should there be a clear ending (laughs) nothing else does it Nothing else just suddenly arrives out of nowhere and stops. It all process of becoming. The stars, you know, and trees, everything's kind of flowing on. So what, what, what's the problem? <laughs> I mean, there's a problem about it. But uh, I don't see the problem with the idea of, of not everything, that things don't just completely evaporate when the body dies. You know, jitta, jitta goes on, is it's, it's the sense what is it that transmigrates, if you like? You want to put it that way, chitta, heart mind. And that is referred to it from time to time. You know, for a long time, this chitta has been driving me crazy. You know, for a long time, restlessness. And the Buddha does make a point of it when he's trying to kind of wake people up a bit. You know, get them to take it seriously. And get on with liberation practice and you know he sometimes given these very powerful similes very powerful you know, similes you know saying bhikkhus imagine a mountain seven yojinas seven yojinas is you know about a hundred kilometers or something wide and a hundred kilometers high made of bones he said what do you think bhikkhus is the amount of bone in that mountain greater than the amount of bones you've had through all these births and they say oh surely lord the bones in the mountain are greater they say no bhikkhus the bones you have had through life after life have been greater than this great mountain Yeah, of course you look at that you know it's it's a fable isn't it in 700 kilo, you know 100 well, kilometer wide 100 kilometer mountain it's obviously a fable so it's, it's a, you're making a point get on with it Like, wake up! You know, do you want any more of this? <laughs> <laughs> so then, it is, you know, there's a level in which the Buddhist teaching is kind of precise. A lot of it's kind of fable and rhetoric to to stir people up. So the idea, you know, you're going to go through this again. Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, can you imagine going having uh, to go through teenage again? Well, that's so embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I would kind of be a little sprawling infant and go through all that ghastly, thing? you know? So, uh, is it possible, how is it possible to get liberated then, you know, if it's, because it's actually, though, this process is going on, this process is going on, the point is that it's not self. Okay, what does that mean? I mean? It creates a self, it generates a self, and at the moment the reaction of new karma arises, it seems like me doing it. You know, it's me getting angry, it's me wanting to do this, it's me. So you think, wait a minute, let's just open up and contemplate. These are energies, Is the sankhara. And that sense of me as the basis, that's perception, sanya. So that's that okay so that's that but also what is it that's aware of that what is it that can sense that is aware of that you can be aware of your reactions you can be aware of your sense of who you are and as i've been reminding us all important things but you is is to begin to relax those reflexes that we have around who we assume ourselves to be because there's a lot of it i don't want to be i want to be something else stop that <laughs> you know so what you can to just begin to you know begin to work on that level of reactivity because you know if you keep reacting to this it's so more karma you're piling up more and more aversion and yeah i mean you know i'm not i'm not fantastically fond of me either But it's like, you know, get on with it. It's like, uh, just try and clear out some of the really crazy stuff and the reactivity, and yeah. So then you don't get so intense about it all. So then this, this, this kind of this awareness property, which we all have, Buddha's saying, you know, just don't work on this. You see on its awareness. So this is considered the shortcut. Like only hundred thousand lifetimes, you'll be out of it. <laughs> sure, it's a very long picture. But you see, that's different because in that time of the Buddha, there were various teachers. Many of them didn't teach any any kind of karma, any kind of rebirth. And there was an example of somebody consulting six teachers, and four of them said, "Doesn't matter what you do. There's no proper. There's no such thing as." You know, nothing really exists anyway, you know. But only two of them had any sense of there being a moral cause and effect. And one was the Jain, Mahavira, and the other was the Buddha. You see. And the Jain said, you know, every time you scratch yourself, that's bad karma because it's an act of violence, you see. So they're really super, super, you know, intense about every tiny little thing. And you've got to be here until all this stuff eventually just kind of begins to wear out, you know. so Jane so you know, just refrain from any kind of action the one of any sort of contact with anything possibly violent and then just endure until eventually all this stuff it just wears out over time. Now I mean, okay, so I don't really know thoroughly Jainism, but that's that's the gist of it, I, I think. And so some of the Jain principles, is, is one of their things is, if you're really into it, you know, you think being a Buddhist monk is something you don't want to do. When you look at being a Jain monk, <laughs> this is soft. Because <laughs> <laughs> they rip your hair out by the follicle. That's for starters, you know, if you're really serious. And then often the, the idea is you starve yourself to death. You kind of, you, you, in order to develop dispassion towards the body, so the Buddha said, "This is bad. This this is a kind of violence." So he really there was a big quarrel between the Jains and the Buddhists. You see in the Suttas and clearly, you know, the Buddhists caricatured the Jains as being deluded and so forth. But the Buddha was very strong that you don't get out of karma by negating negating it, but by understanding it. Yeah. Understanding and understanding, you know, you're not self, they are not self. So what you're trying to do is, is just get this quality awareness presence to begin to, you know, stand apart from the karmic package, which is the five aggregates, mm. the holding presence and beginning to sense those reactions and the clinging, the grasping, you know, the the clutch the push and relaxing it so then so then there's a purity that doesn't go anywhere so how could it be reborn so that's how you untangle the tangle doing what you're doing i hope <sighs> so this is a kind of long question i'll try to crunch it down to something small, Well, creative process requires goal-orientedness, equals a kind of craving, giving energy to thoughts about the future, joyful anticipation, that's the origin of science, social environmental activism, etc. It seems at odds with the receptive, mindful, embodied, present moment awareness we are cultivating. I think I've touched on this. Once again, say it again. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. Sankara wants a result. It wants a result, but there's a quality, heartfulness, that's just a giving, of presence, intentionality, even a giving of loving kindness and so forth. That's not asking for result. Just here we are. We're born. So then it happened and with creativity you see there's also different kinds of desire there's craving which is tanha and that's associated with the desire to become something for fame or reputation or admiration or narcissism of some kind or another or rewards yeah? the craving to become something or the craving to get things done and so on there's also what's called chanda which means desire which is just a sense of having purpose, motivation and uh, this can be corrupted but the eightfold path is an example of uh, desire without craving That is, one is motivated to go to a retreat, one is motivated to be with your body, is motivated to follow the breathing, one feels there's something valuable here, and maybe that desire is a little bit impure, but we have to work where we're at, and gradually as you practice, you're getting feedback from that, and you, you sort of begin to lessen the craving for results less than the identification with the practice you know, less in the craving for fine material states and so that purpose eventually arrives at a place where it's, it's achieved its purpose which is liberation craving never achieves its purpose <laughs> it Doesn't it doesn't achieve it Chanda is considered uh, one of the supportive faculties or supportive qualities for Dharma practice. Now, if you're doing, say, creative stuff, or even Qigong, you know, something like that, then doing something in order to just be in the doing, with a sense of working out impatience, or doubt, or lack of confidence, or... You know, working something out. So then you see you're creating The most important thing is the process rather than the result. That's the way I see it. I create quite a lot, um, you know, and, you know, it's the process that's the richness. Results, I always think, just aren't much good. They just so what? But the process is, is alive and I'm you know, I feel motivated to be in that process as long as it's alive and not just doing something for the sake of doing something. Yeah, even giving a talk—not to because so, I'm a dharma teacher, I give a talk. Oh no, 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 give a talk because I'm alive and I care, and you know, people seek it. So okay, let's get the process going. So during meditation, can I approach a personal issue that requires attention? Well, I mean, what isn't a personal issue? <laughs> you know, <I> mean, <laughs> if there's an issue, it means that it's personal. Is it you feel this is an issue? That's personal, right? Now you might say, what I mean is about my, I don't know, you know I feel overweight or I'm underweight or something like that. You know, so, you know, simple example. And then what we can do in meditation or in this process practice is we with looking at dhammas. So then we might say, okay, there's your issue around, you know, you know you're aging, you don't feel you're attracted enough or something like that so let's look at that what's that mean fear, anxiety not good enough ah, ok, let's get that one and then you speak to explore it so you translate what seem to be mundane perhaps worldly concerns even slightly petty concerns because if they're happening there's something there, right and uh, uh, then you, how is this when you this is fear of being left alone, fear of not being being isolated, fear of not being good enough, you know, Something like that. Okay, fear. So then you translate it into a Dhamma. And all our so called personal topics, when you distill them they come down to pretty much a few simple things that we all experience. You know, fear of other people, fear of being left out of the group, fear of being isolated, um, that kind of thing. That's one of them. Anger, rage, no, um, grief. These are sort of fundamental things that may arise in kind of silly little details. You get angry about your somebody's fed your parrot the wrong kind of food and you get annoyed. <laughs> and it really said, why am I getting so annoyed about my parrot? but then <laughs> you know you felt somehow your boundaries were violated because it was your parrot and nobody else should feed it so okay, so boundaries okay, so you start to contemplate this silly little thing like that of uh, attachment okay, attachment so let's look at that and that grip and what it's about This way we unravel our daily life. And daily life practice is is practice. This is different forms of it, but everything has something to teach us if we know how to look and how to translate things into Dhamma. Quite a few questions come up from time to time about how to deal with another person. Somebody you feel is having a bad time or... She's really having, you know, difficult or whatever. And, as I said, you can't change anyone. Mm. Mm. Is it possible to be fully present with an open heart? Would you explain that? Well, (laughs) I think (laughs) that's it, really. Uh, You know, that's actually... Where you're right on it, aren't you? Another person, you can't get in there and start tweaking it, changing it. Uh, Generally, if you do, people get they resist it. But you can go into your own feeling of, you know, irritation or sadness or frustration and work with that. That clears. You work with that clears then. You may then be able to return to the person who has the problem with perhaps a a fresh approach. A simple example of somebody I know, um, he he had addiction problems, and he had addictive, I guess we all have some sort of addictive tendencies, and I think he had some sort of issue or another, and he went to the pharmacist, and they gave him these, Medications. This medication happened to be addictive. <laughs> and he had an addictive tendency and he started really getting hooked on this medication so that he was going down and, and getting fake prescriptions to get more and more of this stuff, this, this particular medicine, you know, so he was taking all this stuff. And so, uh, his wife was, she knew and and the police also knew <laughs> and they were just waiting to catch him to catch him in the act you see so then she said to him look you you know i know you're doing this and you're ruining your life if you want to do that that's okay with me it's your life, that's what you do. Yeah. But this is what you're doing. It's kind of equanimity, you know. You know. And it's worked. Now she just said, no, 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 no. it might not have worked. So, he, he, okay, he stopped, not. And um, <laughs> he didn't get busted. <laughs> because they didn't actually catch him in the act and... Uh, so he, he kind of had to do some sort of, you know, um, civil service, that, but he didn't get the full penalty. Because the sense of somebody actually coming, from, not from an angry place, or a worried place, or an anxious place, or a judgmental place, just equanimity, tell the truth. This, this is this, These the results, this, these are the results, I'm not giving up on you, these are the results. That seemed to work in that particular case now I'm not saying that's always the answer but the best thing to do is to come to a place of pure presence and see what response can come from there hmm. much of life is unsolvable on a kind of that on the things are going to work out you know, but there's a possibility of freedom from our compulsive reflexes for those who will listen and again, not everybody does. So even in the case of the Buddha, they you know, present the teaching, somebody get it, somebody didn't. That's the way it goes. So the Buddha couldn't change people. Some people are available, listen, and they get it. Some people don't. And their practice of equanimity. That's what it's about. Does slow mean mindful? Can't you walk fast and be mindful? Is the intention that's important? Um, intention and attention are important. Yeah, You can walk fast and be mindful, but what you have to do really is. Um, so the, the function called sampajjāno. Sampajāno is another factor that's often associated with tākti and it means something like alert, alert knowingness. Which means, you know, it's a sense of an overall alert knowingness that then kind of informs, you know, what to be mindful of. Another factor is called Yoniso Manasikara, which deep attention, which again says, this is a suitable thing to place your mindfulness on, you know, this is a suitable thing. So if you're walking, you know, to the, um, into the, say, uh, railway station or something, then it's not important to be focused on every sensation in your foot, but it's important to be focused on what's on the notice boards <laughs> and be mindful of that, Yeah. And then also uh, situational, so some has different qualities than the one is contextual. That is, in this particular context, you know, you know, this is the appropriate form of behavior or focus of attention. It could be widespread to include everyone, or it could be, you know, focused on a particular point if you're doing something refined and contextual. It has an aim, you know. So the aim of Sampajjano is, you know, what uh, liberates or what brings around beneficial results. You don't know, but you're attentive to that potential. So then your mindfulness is, where, where is the, when all this, that's the thing to focus on that will bring around good results. Yeah. So jana. Another one is... Oh, mm, non-delusion which means you know, whatever you're focusing on, you understand it to be um, you not-self, factors arising so you're, you're tuned to that and it can change at any given moment so you keep keep your attention fairly fluent and supple that's Sampajana another one is called uh, Sapaya which means your mindfulness is suitable which means it generally means it's not super intense it's not tight you can sustain it you can sustain it it's manageable you can sustain it so you're not kind of tight and so these all help to moderate uh, mindfulness so sometimes it's appropriate to walk fast as I've said you know in airports now and so forth I'm sort of studying the, um, the more adept airport goers. And I realize in order to be in an airport, you have to have, first of all, constantly twitching around. Then looking at mobile phone every few seconds. And then looking at the notice boards and going off and drinking coffee. This seems to be the appropriate procedure <laughs> <laughs> to maintain superb airport mindfulness. <laughs> but I'm a beginner at it. I'm not very good at it but certainly you don't kind of so i'm not very good at it so i tend to go into kind of slightly either kind of slightly scrambled or just befuddled you know like what's going on and that that works because sooner or later somebody comes along and says are you lost you know talk about anatta I think I have talked about that already and once again it's anatta um, it's a little bit of a paradox it's a little bit of a, a topic that can be very um, congested so the Buddha used this word referring to perceptions that's these impressions that arise in the mind Volitional tendencies, sankharas, forms, either external forms or internal forms, you know, that is one feels suddenly very tight or contracted or expansive, subtle forms, internal forms, external forms, even um, feeling, that buzz that rushes through, pushes, and um, consciousness, which means where awareness is located or positioned, particularly in terms of the mind, you know, so we can get into quite a refined state of mind, think, wow, I'm there, you know. So a big, big self thing starts happening around it. You know, or that's his body, you know, that's who he is. Self thing happens there, or this is mine, it's, you know, not very pleasant or something. So these are, all, of example, where taking these experiences personally, causes suffering and stress, confusion and delusion, grasping and becoming, right? So this is a teaching that has a remedial result. It's a medicine teaching, right? So you see these things as yourself, or don't necessarily think of you, there's a certain intensification, right? Whoa, this is mine, or I am this. There's an, an emotional intensity, that arises about something that has this self-flavor to it, right? so, so when that occurs, you've got to begin to sense this is actually, this is a phenomenon, this is a state of mind, this is a feeling, this is a perception, just say what it is. Um, and that helps to, to lessen this intensification of identification, it's a medicine teaching. Now what he doesn't say is there's no such thing as a self. He doesn't say that. It's not an ontological teaching. It's not a statement about existence. It's a statement about dealing with a particular disease called identification. Okay? It's not interested in ontological statements. Ontological means, you know, the nature of being. He's interested in the nature of suffering (laughs) and how to stop it. And it's kind of frustrating for people who want to have some kind of statement. Is this my true self? Is there a higher self? Is there no self? And the Buddha said, just thinking like that's going to drive you crazy. It's not the point. (laughs) The point is, you know, how does suffering arise? (laughs) And whenever this flavoring of identification happens, you know, sometimes you don't notice it, but... There's a certain, you're, you're building up to suffering because that thing will change and then you feel you've lost something <laughs> yeah. so that that's what Anatta teaching is about now it's very important to, to, to remember that because you can get to the sense of self denial or hatred of the apparent self like I've got a Beat my ego! I shouldn't be so egotistical. You know, I've got this nasty little idiot self happening. I should, you know, bothers me all the time. It's myself, and I've got to try and stop it. Well, no, this is not appropriate because that's already got this aversive tendency. So we're not, we're not really denying the apparent appearance of self. It's an appearance. But when that appears, when that quality appears with its intensification and its activation, you know, oh, look at this, let's look at that. Let's purify our response to it. That's the idea. When a self-experience arises, it's purifying the response to that from pure presence. You know, that's, that's you know, that's how we practice, you know. And so then sometimes, well, when the chitta is liberated, is that your true self? Well, you know, like, why do you keep using this word? (laughs) Isn't liberation good enough? (laughs) So like, you know, so certain questions, you know, if it's yourself, how can you be aware of it if it's yourself? It can't be an object if it's a subject if you can't control it it can't be yours right <laughs> right if it contains you know if it contains anything that that's, you can't control or own it can't be yours so you see like a body well I mean, not much chance of that being a self really you know mother father got it here it's compounded out of minerals and elements and earth and food and air and water keep it going um And if you, you know, if you go into a biological analysis, see, most of your body is somebody else. It's all these different sub-microscopic organisms just frisking around. (laughs) We're, We're more like a city than a person. So another kind of really down-to-earth thing. Why does standing meditation seem more effective than sitting? Is there a time or situation where standing meditation is recommended over other postures? Standing meditation is very good for, well, for really getting into the body because um, you can't be passive with standing. It's not about action, but you've actually got to be there. Otherwise, you fall over and your body knows that. Whereas sitting, you can sit there and just (laughs) wee, As we know, almost not off. Go to sleep, which we know. So not that I'm against sitting, but standing, you can't do that or it's more difficult to do that. So it's really good for when you're not feeling grounded, you're feeling a bit spaced out or stuff's moving around too fast feet stand you know then, then of course with standing if you if you practice it the, the theme is to get whole body not just your legs standing but then if you get your whole body synchronized or coordinated with the standing experience it's really pretty pleasant once you learn how to do it you come into balance and so your muscles can relax and Nervous tension can relax, and the sense of when that relaxes, something seems to open up. So it can be quite light when you cultivate it. Um, But it's certainly not the only way, but it it can be recommended. Uh, I'd recommend it um, for groundedness, for when we're getting fuzzy or foggy, sleepy, restless. Uh, It's helpful and you can take it quite a long way with the various kinds of uh, attention walking is good to get things moving if you're getting stuck you need some energy to move through because actually for the mind it's much easier to track a moving object than a static object it's much easier to stay with something that's moving than something that's still we we track change, shift. Your mind stays alert with it. When it's something that's still, it's easy just to stays in. Your, your mind loses attention on it because it's yeah. You know, it's the it's the shifting that gives us something to focus on. So even when we're sitting, the theme is to focus on something that's moving, the breathing. It's, it's subtly moving, but it's moving. And the theme of that is, as, as you get into that movingness, there's a stillness. Because th- the mind is not separating itself. So the mind, in a way, is still, rather like a surfer on a wave. Not that I've done any surfing. But, you know, there's an idea. You get the idea, something's moving, and the person just... It actually is quite still and finding the balance so then the stillness and movement work together when we're sitting and so standing as its time and place and you have to find out what works for you how can i give back more than i take living in switzerland well i don't know anything specific about switzerland it's more greedy than anywhere else <laughs> <laughs> hoarding it is an affluent country so one can feel a bit guilty about that and um, unfortunately what we begin to realise is this money is associated with yeah, unwholesome, and corrupt, or selfish habits and I'm sure like any other country there's that that's the economy of, of, of countries, but as I was also saying, you know, what we can give is our morality, and our goodwill, and our wisdom. That's what you can give. So you set your heart up in that particular way, and you're motivated in that particular way, and then you see what possibilities you have to to give and share and uh, and, uh, contribute to the welfare of others through those bases. Mm. On the development of samadhi, collectedness, is it possible to have periods in which we have to refocus much more on bodily, physical sensations and drop external? Well, actually, what I'm talking about is that you know, I differentiate sensations as external, um that is which comes into contact with the body, and internal being more like the internal energies and resonances that, that occur. And, uh, they're both very helpful, important, because the internal stuff, this is where all the karma and these karmic potentials, you know, are most ripe and accessible. You know. But they're also extremely potent, and we can feel a bit overwhelmed by it, all. or out of our depths. You go in, it's just too much. So then you go to the external, just walking, you know, sensations of walking, whole body walking, whole body sitting, you know, go out, and see some nature, and look at the space. So it he helps to, you know, to still being mindful, but your sampajano says, you're not doing very well in this, you know, put your mindfulness somewhere else. So then you mindfully focus on the external aspects, still maintaining mindfulness, still contemplating changeability and, and so forth, just so we get that balance. So the Buddha says you, you shouldn't cling internally or externally so you know we can think we don't want to be all external but you don't want to be just all internal either so we might say very simple example if we're on a retreat yeah my energies and feelings count but also I've got to respect the fact that I'm on a retreat centre here's the code of conduct you know here's other people here's the washing up you know that's the external that counts <laughs> it's not like my energies don't really support doing the washing up at this time you know, like you know well get on with it and <laughs> this is when you're getting too clinging internally and ideally you know a long time we try to make it so the two come together you know, so that we're able to. Flex our energies, our heartfulness into external activities and situations. This is the eightfold path: right action, right livelihood. They all count, and they all lead to samadhi. So he's asking about God <laughs> and Christ. Now, what's that? You know, to do with dhamma. You know, how to kind of reflect on that? Well, you know, I must admit that because I came up through the, you know, pretty much mainstream Christianity you learn in schools, it's a kind of a bit weird, really, um, because God does a lot of smiting in the Old Testament. He keeps smiting people. Smiting means you kill them. So God's a pretty vengeful, nasty guy. In the Old Testament, it smites people all over the place <laughs> and blasts people and so forth, uh, and then he's jealous as well. It says, "I'm a jealous God." Mm-hmm. It's got some defilements. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't that inspired. <laughs> but the New Testament kind of, you know, it gets a bit freshened up, and that was a bit more inspiring, you know, loving, but. Uh, uh, it was kind of the look around and nobody's doing it <laughs> uh, and then this way it's configured in the in, in church you just got to keep praising God otherwise he's going to bash you or throw you to hell which seemed a bit cheap really <laughs> uh, so what, what's all this about um, so I kind of moved away from it because of that uh, that culture then if you come back to trying to get a sense of what the mystics experienced then I'll tentatively say God is pure presence and Jesus is the response that presence makes Christ is that so you know pure presence and then as pure presence comes into the world which I guess is what the whole Christian thing is then there's some sort of response which is sympathetic loving Which I think was what Christ thinks about. And then you can practice like that. You know, coming to just pure awareness doesn't do anything. And then as you come in meeting what arises, that's the Christly aspect of that. If that's what, you know, helps you. I don't personally really need it, but it may help you if you're inspired by that theological aspect. Restlessness is my most frequent hindrance sometimes. How do I deal with it? Um, Try to create a wide space for it to run around in and try to create a core presence that doesn't object to it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, uh, if we have a dog, you know, and we have a garden with a fence around it, and the dog gets out, it's kind of exciting. It runs around, yeah, 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 running around the garden. Okay, you don't don't keep it in the kennel. Give it a garden. It runs around the garden, and then you can run after it, saying, "Quiet! Just stop! Stop! Stop!" It's not going to do. It, but you stand in the middle of the garden, dog running around. And you stand there quietly for a long enough time. The dog eventually goes, "What's that?" <laughs> and it comes over and sniffs and licks your hand. You know, so that's how you deal with restlessness. <laughs> so contemplate death daily. Often get very heavy heart, imagining being separated from my two children. A thought bothers me a lot. Attachment, letting go, accepting. How to come to peace with that. Well, this contemplation of death is considered to be a very important recollection. It's recommended to do it every day. Yeah, So it's one of those subjects for frequent recollection. And um, in fact, you know Another figurative example, the Buddha once asked the monks, how often do you do it? And He said, I do it a couple of times a day. So he said, it's not enough. So someone monk said, every time I eat something, I think this is my last meal. And he said, that's good, but it's not enough. He said, so every time I breathe in, I think this is my last in-breath. It's my last out-breath. I think, that's good. <laughs> because it makes you very fresh and grateful and eventually you cultivate it like that everything is kind of wonderful really so you know death is in, you know inevitable obviously and so we need to just keep placing it there because it does help us to live in a more I think a more grand hearted way we're not holding on to we're, everything we've got we're going to lose so let's share it around you know and then you get the joy and the love and that's going to be much more rewarding for your, for your heart and opening and stuff like that. Most difficult thing, of course, is separation from your children, I imagine, or from other people. Um, you know, and obviously very uh, heartbreaking at times. I don't think you can just suddenly, you know, oh well, there she goes. You know, <laughs> uh, but this is what grieving is about. Grieving, so you you can't rush into it. You've got to kind of sense it and you feel that sense of shakiness and, oh no, oh no, just stay there. Mm. Heart surges and moves around. Okay, fine, stay there. Give it time. You keep practicing like that. You know, it doesn't, letting go doesn't always happen in a finger snap. It can be quite a slow, Process in which the most important thing, I guess, is the love. You know, because that's what happens, isn't it, with people? We love them. And then that, so we've got to sustain it. Even if the body is moving away, we sustain that. And then there can be the result of some, you know, grief and sorrow, but we haven't lost the love. You don't need to lose that. But and so, just getting the, the attention to 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 keep moving back towards that fundamental quality. And this is all you can do. This is the best you can do. You know, and you have to also experience some of that shaking or sorrow. But be with that. It will gradually. You know, you'll find you haven't just tried to be brave and cut it all off you've actually distilled uh, and purified your relationships with others and so this is certainly recommended in relationships to remember that and not being gloomy but being realistic and then really okay, this is my friend one day that will go and yeah, you know so try to sustain that quality of um, the good heart doesn't need to go and maybe that's person helped me to remember the good heart and gradually the attachments will begin to release from it if you focus on that quality obviously we have attachment but that can begin to release if you focus on the inner quality of it then these Kind of attachments can unfold. So with the children, you know, I haven't got any children, but uh, you know, if you lose friends, people die, and so on, you know, just wish them well. You know, send them into the world. Wish them well. Give them metta. Um, that's and then they're, they're carrying. You've done your duty, your love has been completed. Let the beings go their way. Well person's asked me after all my practice and so forth, could you do a brief summary of my five wisdoms, my top five. What do you find? most essential. this is it. <laughs> I guess it may, may change from day to day. but um, it's just bearing in mind I don't think think um, that's the most useful right now what comes to mind one of the most useful things is to pause. pause. Uh, I think this is what heedfulness is about. So, don't just blindly rush on. Don't just have it, react. Pause. So, in that pause moment, the mind kind of lifts off of the activity, the sankara. Okay. Pause. It can be three seconds. making a practice out of it because you know you can take a 10 second pause during your busy working day you can't take an hour for meditation but you can take a 10 second pause 5 times a day you know you just stop and that Awareness immediately opens up. Where are you going? What are you doing? What's important? That's useful. It's, it's modest, but it's very useful and it's very portable. The other thing i scribbled down was... I guess that deals with the reactivity of intention, where we jump into the next thing. Now the other point I made was I called it widen, widen or widen and soften. And this, this deals with the reactivity of attention, where tend to jump onto some point or another. This also supports fairly habitual behavior. And... Uh, Habits. So the widening is again a, a shift from attention to awareness. So pause is a shift from intention. Remember you know, the arrow. Right, shift from the arrow of intention to the circle of. Right? So it's that shift. Then widening and softening, same thing, is associated with a shift from that focal point on the object to how am I with it so again this sense of a responsive awareness just unfolds as soon as you do that and these are all you know fairly manageable daily life practices when you find yourself getting too intense about something. You know there's a problem, you've got to solve it. What's this? Stop. Widen. Oh I thought of that. This allows ingenuity. New ideas to come up. Um Oh there's another one. Meat <laughs> Meat Meat what arises, meet what arises, you know, know, direct, direct, don't think about it, or you do think meet what arises, Uh, I find that very important because, you know, there are certain things I don't really, a lot of me doesn't want to meet it, and it's just boring or irritating or I can't stand it or... Uh, don't know what to do with it. And, okay, let's meet what arises. You can learn something that way. There's something to learn in this, uh, and that's a good. It's a good reminder, though. Of course, one fails, as with many things. You, know, you get some awkward, sticky, stupid situation. Oh, you can deal with it. <laughs> or It's not my job, or something like that. You feel that kind of wavering, and you know, just meet. You don't have to solve it. You don't have to have an answer. But just meet it, internally, externally. That's I find that helpful for me. Um, another one, pretty familiar piece of wisdom. I'm sure this will pass. <laughs> I don't think it needs an explanation, does it? And uh, the last bit is inquire. Keep, keep curious. Keep curious. Don't, don't arrive at a conclusion. Just keep curious, inquire. So that's it. That's my five. this okay. Oh, so this one, Qigong, is assumed so gentle, why am I out of breath and sweating during the practice? Well, because you're out of condition. (laughs) That will pass. (laughs) Meet it. (laughs) Investigate it. It will pass. It's really, uh, it's quite surprising, um, both Tan and I were reflecting on Qigong practice and noticing how people who seem really quite vigorous and strong and well-built would just crumble uh, just three minutes of standing still. <laughs> uh, because it, it, it exercises bits that we don't really know about. You know, we know all about the muscles and all this kind of thing. But um, so you get people who are quite strong, muscular. But qigong is not a muscle thing. It's about the connective tissues. You see, so the connective tissues, which is where all the intelligence of the body runs through the connective tissues, and actually, big muscles tend to block the connective tissues, the connective energies. So, you know, so it can be strange because these connective tissues, first of all. People don't even really know what you're talking about. A lot of it is, is fascia tissue, fascia um, sinews and things like that. But a lot of it is the fascia, which is this fine kind of film of, of fine skin membrane wrapping around the body. See? And that connects. And it, so it often connects across the joints and, and around the muscles and the viscera. So that's that's where the energy moves and by and large people hardly know it exists have no way of exercising it and a lot of our life is about disconnection you know we live in a certain zone in the body head and then you know it's, it's very broken so much that you can develop certain areas really strong but we don't develop the whole thing as a as a fluid process uh, you know So once you start to do this, sometimes the body starts to shake, you know, or you sweat. And then if it's like that, don't overdo it. But this is not a bad sign. It means the body's energy is starting to work things out, work things through. And then just take your time. Then you'll pass through. Um, I think I'll leave it there for this evening. Thank you.